Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area between Baltimore and Bel Air, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. Come join us on a Sunday. Our service info is at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. We are in Revelation chapter 14 this morning. We're moving quick. <laughs> All righty. In Revelation chapter 12, we were introduced to a seven-headed, blood-red, pernicious, evil dragon uh, who was revealed as Satan. And though he was defeated time and time again, he was still... Uh, he was, he is uh, still an evil and monstrous beast. And then in Revelation chapter 13, we see him raise two horrible, ugly beasts. One from out of the land and one from out of the sea. The one from out of the sea looked just like him with seven heads. However, this one had a different set of diadems. Regardless, it was an evil dragon. And everything that this sea beast and this land beast said and did... Uh, was horrible and evil. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 13, the land beast demands that everyone must receive the mark of the sea beast or die. The mark of this beast is the number 666. So chapter 13 ends in a very bleak way with a very bad position for the earth. Uh, that people either believe a lie and get marked to damnation and worship a false trinity. Uh, that, that's, that was what they must do if they are going to not be smart murdered. And now here comes chapter 14. And what we're going to see is that as evil is afoot, God is not somewhere uh, like Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal. Maybe God is sleeping. Maybe your God, Baal, is pooping somewhere. You know, maybe he's... <clears throat> When evil is afoot, God is not somewhere distracted. Hmm. Chapter 14 shows us that God is also at work. And that God also has his people marked with a number on their heads, who also worship a trinity, but of course the true trinity. So as we jump into this chapter, chapter 14, we have to remember it comes in contrast to the evil we just saw in chapters 12 and 13. So let's hop into this verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, <clears throat> and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Let's pause. This is so fascinating. This is the whole teaching here, but I, we're going to do more than one verse, I promise. <clears throat> in chapter 13, the false prophet sets up a statue at the temple in honor of the Antichrist. Most likely, this temple will occur on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. And it is here that the world is told to receive the mark of the beast, his number being 666, or die. But now here we are in chapter 14, and we're on a new mountain, Mount Zion. And though there is, Mount, there is a Mount Zion in Israel today, this mountain, Zion, seems to be in heaven because the Lamb is standing there. Jesus hasn't returned to earth yet. Uh, but clearly, the reason this mountain is called Zion is to make 
the, the connections to build upon the significance of what Mount Zion has meant all throughout the whole Bible. So point being, when this letter was written in 90 AD, the original recipients would look at this as two mountains right next to each other because Zion and Moriah literally are right next to each other. We have a beast and his people marked on one mountain and Jesus and his marked people on the other. So we have a tale of two mountains today. Uh, Moriah versus Zion. Now, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was the site of Herod's temple, the third temple of, uh, in Jesus' day. So when you read of the temple in the Gospels, in the New Testament, that is the third temple on Temple Mount in Mount Moriah. And it was at this temple on this mountain that Jesus prophesied that this temple would be torn down and not one stone would be left upon another. And it was in 70. In 70, it was burned to the ground and not one stone was left on top of another. And it was also at this temple on this mountain that the father, when Jesus said, it is finished and yielded up his spirit. Does anyone remember what the father did? He ripped the veil of this temple in two, which I love from top to bottom, like he karate chops it. He rips it in two. Thus making the temple not the place of his dwelling, but now, where does God Shekinah, where does his spirit rest and indwell? Within his people. Which is why in Acts chapter 2, the falling, the descending of the Holy Spirit, reads like the dedication of the temple, because we are the new temple of God. We are his people. The temple was torn because God no longer needed to be shielded from man. But through Jesus Christ, he could dwell with him. And when you look at the book of Acts, the believers, they still worshipped at the temple. But as soon as the Spirit came at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit indwelled the church, there was no longer any need to go to the temple. And in many places, like in Jeremiah, the temple actually became an idol. And doesn't this happen to people with the church? Like the church is a great thing. God commands we go to church. There's no framework in the entire New Testament that God's people don't go to church. That's just not in the Bible. So when someone says, well, the church is us, well, the church also gathers. So, <laughs> And not around a few cups of coffee at a Starbucks somewhere. In an organized ecclesia with elders, it's the church, okay? And, and, and there, there's a great trap, a great temptation we can learn from the Old Testament, and even for us, is that we can stop trusting in the God of the church and start putting our trust in our attendance. We can start putting our trust in our tithe or our prayer. How do you know I'm saved? Because I pray three times a day. Or because pastors, they make an idol out of their own preaching. They think the ability to manipulate people makes them holy. No. (laughs) Tell that to Hitler, you know. No, the the, the church can become an idol and this can be sinful. Well, the temple became an idol because God's presence was no longer there. It was with his people. Yet people kept worshiping at the temple. And so when Jesus had accomplished his work on the cross, the spirit of God had left Herod's temple never to return. And here we are in Revelation. And what we see in the last days is the Antichrist is no dummy. He's going to build a new temple. The fourth temple. And most likely, presumably, he's going to plop it right on Mount Moriah. Right where that old temple was. 
And he will use it as an idol to trap and lure the nations into idolatry. But now in chapter 14, we're introduced to a new mountain, Mount Zion, the city of David is what it's known as in the Old Testament. Now the name Zion, or the full name Mount Zion, is used 169 times in the Old Testament. And it's talked about in so many different ways. But one of the things that becomes abundantly clear when you do a study on what the significance of Zion, or Mount Zion means, in the Old Testament, is its Davidic themes. It's David's city. David conquered it. David established. David, when, so, when the temple was built, when Solomon finished the temple that David had brought all the materials in for, the ark left the city of David to Moriah, to, to, the, to the temple. We also see that it will be David's offspring city. It's a fortress city. It's the city where the Messiah will rule and reign from. Here's an example, Psalm 2. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I love that word, derision. That's a good word. Uh, when he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that's where the, the nations must kiss the sun lest they perish on the way. That's where he will break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them like a potter's vessel. This is where the Messiah rules and reigns of out of the, out of the Psalms. In Mount Zion, the city of David. It is from Zion that the Lord appears in strength. In question, have you ever noticed when you read the gospel, the Jewish people kept expecting Jesus to become a military leader? Have you noticed this when you read that? <clears throat> this is what they, they, they were, this is what they were singing at the triumphal entry. Remember, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, in the highest. And then, and then it says he, they kept calling him the son of David. You know why? Kill him, Jesus. <laughs> Remember when the Jesus is getting arrested? Peter lops off an ear. And then it basically looks at the Lord like, get him with lightning now, God. You know, they, they kept waiting for Jesus to become a military leader. They kept waiting for Jesus to kill the Romans in Jerusalem. Now we can read this, old, the, the New Testament, and we can shake our heads and scoff at their blindness for missing Jesus' mission. But the reality is there is so much in the scriptures of the Messiah being a military leader. Je that, that the promised Messiah, Jesus, would be a great king. But what we see here as we start to come to this side of Revelation is that all of those promises in the Old Testament, they didn't just go away. God didn't lie and go, ah, I changed my mind. All of those promises of Jesus as king and mighty man of valor, of great warrior, of great general, all of those things are now, chapter 14, beginning to play out. Jesus the king is on where? Mount Zion. He's Psalm 2 on his holy hill. With what? The 144,000, which are arranged, that we saw early in Revelation, is 12 by 12s. They're arranged as a priestly army unto God. Jesus is on Mount Moriah, or Mount Zion, with his army, ready for spiritual battle. 
And like the story of David and Goliath, we have two armies on two hills. We have Jesus, the son of David, and the Antichrist, a monster like Goliath. Fun factoid, have you noticed when you read 1 Samuel, there's so much information given on Goliath's outfit? One of the reasons is, he's, it says, a specific note, he's covered in scaled armor. He's dressed up like a dragon. Surprise, surprise, no. Jesus, the son of David, comes to slay the dragon in the book of Revelation. So the, the, there's fascinating parallels there, besides the point. <coughs> now, before we move on to verse 2, I want you to notice the name that is on the 144,000, because this is, this is unique. It is the name of the Lamb and of the Father. And the point is this. If you belong to the Lamb, you also belong to the Father. If you are at peace with the Lamb, then you are also at peace with the Father. If you are living out the teachings of Christ then you are living out the teachings of the Father. I firmly believe this is a very special note for Messianic believers. And what I mean by that are are converted Jews from Judaism to to Jesus, to, 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 to Christianity, faith in the Messiah. In the first century, you have to understand, when the Jewish people came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, they were called traitors by the temple leadership. They were called apostates from the Father. And when this fourth temple is rebuilt in the end times, I have no doubt that the Jewish believers who come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ will face the same accusations and persecutions that the first century church did. They will be told they're turning their backs on their faith. They will be told... They will be told that they have turned their backs on the Father. But here is a special note that when you come to Jesus Christ, you are not only sealed with the name of Christ, you are also sealed with the name of the Father. We all have to understand, when we come to Jesus Christ, you are not turning your back on the Old Testament. You are believing in the Old Testament to its fullness. You're believing in in the Messiah with whom it prophesied. You're believing everything the Old Testament was building to. Now this may not hit you that strongly, but this is important. We are not an apostate sect of Judaism. (laughs) We have not been tricked by Paul. And the disciples and have walked away from the Father. No, by God's grace we have continued to follow the will of the Father. And the will of the Father, John 6, is that we believe in his Son. He who follows the Son gets the Father. If you have built your life upon Jesus Christ... One day when you get up into heaven, you are going to see the Father. Who is so beautiful and radiant that if you do not have new eyes, you would literally burst into flames from his glory. And the Father is going to love you dearly because you loved his Son. Now verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. 
The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. In Revelation chapter 12 and 13, we were introduced to the evil trinity. And in chapter 14, in many ways, is a chapter and response, a correlating chapter to those events. And in chapter, Revelation chapter 12 and 13, there, there was a great emphasis placed upon the mouth of Satan. Remember from Satan poured forth great, uh, great waters to kill the, the Jewish people in running. Out of the mouth of the Antichrist, he haughted great and blasphemous words, it said. Out of the mouth of the false prophets, remember he looked like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. And now we see in chapter 14, the 144,000 filled with the Spirit, marked by the Father and Son. And we hear a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, the sound of thunder and the sound of harpists. In Revelation chapter 1, we were introduced to Jesus who is said to have a voice like many waters. In Revelation chapter 4, which was referencing the Lord's appearance to Mount Sinai, the Father sounds like peals of thunder. Which John in John 12, 29 says that when the Father speaks, it sounds like thunder. <laughs> and question, since the evil trinity was put on full display for chapters 12 and 13, if we have imagery here of the Father and the Son, is it possible that the sound of harpists is the sound of the Spirit? Of course. Remember, Mount Zion is the city of David, and David, the great psalmist, composed his music through the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit of God moves all through the Bible, it is, it, it is the Spirit that stirs people into heavenly worship. The sound of the Holy Spirit, often in the Scriptures, is the sound of His working in the lives of His people. So we have the thunder of the Father, the, the waters of the Son, and the harp of those led by the Spirit. Now, listen to the purpose of this Trinitarian sound. Verse 2. But first, coffee break. And I heard the voice, heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Worship. Worship is warfare. <laughs> this Trinitarian praise is going to transform into the defeat of tyrannical, demonic evil. And notice it says that no one could learn. That Greek can mean, can mean to study the song. So, it seems that it's not that people could not hear the words of the song and couldn't make it out like in some sort of new language, but rather people heard the song and did not understand it, except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Question, have you ever sat in a church service long enough and go, I have no idea what this person's talking about? And then at some point, the Spirit of God grabs you and it makes sense. Or you'll read a passage of scripture over and over and over again and go, I got nothing. And then one day God grabs you and it's like, how did I miss this? Well, the 144,000 are going to sing a song and the world has no idea what this means. But they know because the Spirit enables them to know. 
Now, verse 4 and 5 is going to describe the character of these 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. So they're God's special portion. And in their mouth was no lie, for they are blameless. And of course, this is in contrast to the beast and the beastly who lie incessantly. In the mouth of the 144,000, there was no lie. If you're curious about all the sexual purity stuff in this chapter, you're going to have to check out tomorrow's B-side, but it's fascinating. But if I can elevate or pitch it for you, these are warriors ready for battle. They're undistracted. They're undefiled, ready for the Lord. Um, And that's today's text. Can you believe we did five verses? This is amazing. I'm so happy. God's so cool. Never would have thought that's possible. Um, As we look at the 144,000 today, we we don't want to make the mistake and focus on their glory. Because what makes the 144,000 special? God is with them. He has sealed them. Same is true with any of us. You ever hear a really great pastor and a really good, like Spurgeon. I love Charles Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon so much, I got a beard like him. I love him so much, I named my second son after him. His middle name's Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. Without the Spirit of God, he's nothing. He's just a man. But it's what God did through him. He's the aqueduct that carried the water. (laughs) What what these 144,000 do, as we're going to continue to see, is truly incredible. But it's not them. It's what God does through them. And so today... I want to use today's text as an opportunity about talking about being filled with the Spirit of God. Did you know that the very first record of the Holy Spirit coming into a person is in Exodus 35 to a man named Bezaliel? Did you know that? If you ever get stuck in a Bible trivia question, just go, Bezaliel, you know, and you'll you'll win. Um, Exodus 35.30, it says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, this is the first, remember, the first recording of the Holy Spirit being talked about within somebody. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called, my, uh, called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. Question, can God give you intelligence? The Spirit of God can make you smart. (laughs) The Spirit of God can move in you in such a way, you are not good at your job. God can equip you to do that. Ask Him. Ask Him. Verse 32, with all craftsmen, To devise artistic design, 
to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stone for setting and in carving wood for, uh, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiwab, uh, the son of, now this is, this is, don't, this is probably not how you pronounce this one. Akisamok, I nailed it, uh, of the tribe of Dan. Uh, he has filled them with skill to do every work of so, uh, a sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer uh, in blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine, twi- uh, fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of, of workman or skilled designer. The first record of the Holy Spirit at work within the life of somebody was someone who worked with their hands. They were chosen and gifted by God and filled with the Holy Spirit to use their hands for His glory. Isn't that just like God? (laughs) Imagine for a moment the Bible was a human invention. Let's just pretend for a second man made this up. And he was now going to introduce the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody to enable them to do incredible things. If this was you, wouldn't you have your first person like a warrior? Or a king? Or a prophet? Or a healer? But this book was written by no man. But by God. And he chose to introduce the dwelling of the Holy Spirit through a Mason, (laughs) through a carpenter. As so much of today's text was about singing and loud noises and instruments, and as we think about the sound of of the triune God in the Exodus, Jesus was speaking from a bush. Remember, he says in the garden, I am. The Father is thundering from Mount uh, Sinai. And the sound of the Holy Spirit in the Exodus is the sound of bronze and gold being hammered. It was the sound of the saw cutting timber, the chiseling of the rock. And as we think about the Holy Spirit's arrival in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes as the sound of the rushing wind, but as soon as the Holy Spirit's in God's people, He doesn't make any more noise. The noise that He makes is through His people as Peter starts to preach. As the people start prophesying, the sound of the Holy Spirit in the Bible often is the sound of his working through his people, and he makes noises through them. And so as we look at the Holy Spirit's work in the life of his people in the 144,000 harp playing, in Bezaliel's hammering, in Peter's preaching, this is what I want us to walk away with. That the Holy Spirit has not been given to equip only a few select kinds of people. To equip only missionaries, only pastors, only evangelists to glorify God. The same Holy Spirit that is alive in me is the same Holy Spirit that is alive in you. Is the same Holy Spirit in the 144,000, in David, in Elijah, 
in Peter, Paul, and John. It's the same Holy Spirit alive in us. The same Holy Spirit that helped them in their work is the same Holy Spirit that helps you in yours. I love that passage in Acts. I reference it frequently. When the the apostles who were fishermen, you ever hear a fisherman talk? Outside of swear words, they don't have a large repertoire. <laughs> and, the, and these people who had spent their life in school listened to these men preach and give the gospel. And they go, these men are un- unlearned men. And yet they realized they were brilliant. And what did they conclude? They realized they had been with Jesus. When the Holy Spirit is in you, he changes you. He equips you. He gives you knowledge and skill. He helps you with the calluses on your hands. He helps you. He is your helper. And if you are a believer and you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're a carpenter, or you're a teacher, or whatever, and the Holy Spirit has come into your life through faith, that he has come upon you and he lives within you to bring about change. <laughs> God has not come into your life to keep you the same. He has come into your life to fundamentally change everything about you. To make noise through you. To bring about good through you. The same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit at work in you, Paul says. The God who says, let there be light, and there was, is the same God that gets you up every morning and decides to do a fresh work. (laughs) And so, how does this work, right? You know, you'll hear pastors and teachers sometimes say, be filled with the Spirit. And you can go, what the heck does that mean? Right? (laughs) I want to be filled with the Spirit. How? If God has made you great at sports, kick a soccer ball to the glory of God. (laughs) Now that's not very complicated now, is it? (laughs) Make noise for Him. Make noise for him and have fun doing it. We have the good news, not salmonella. (laughs) We have the good news of great joy. Have fun doing it. God's made you athletic. Go have fun. Jump high, lift heavy things to the glory of God. (laughs) You know, one of my favorite people in, in all of church history is a man by the name of William Wilberforce. He was an incredible man who did incredible things. But one of the things that make me so drawn to him was his joy. When you read of his accounts, when you read his works, this was a man who was happy. And by the end of his life, he was almost totally blind. He had to walk with a perpetual back brace and was a hunchback. And yet he did not stop smiling when someone wrote of him by the tone, quote, by the tone of his voice uh, and expression of his countenance, he showed that joy was the prevailing feature of his own mind. Joy springing from entireness of trust in the Savior's merits and from love to God and to man. His joy was quite 
penetrating. How cool is that? <laughs> Another said, oh, this one made me think of my dad, actually. As he walked about the house, he was generally humming the tune of a hymn or a psalm, as if he could not contain his pleasure, pleasurable feelings of thankfulness and devotion. <laughs> he just couldn't help but the whistle as he walked along the way. Listen, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. If God has made you generally happy and joyful, then use it. That's a gift from God. That's a gift of the Spirit. Make noise with it. If you're funny, like, I'm, I really, I'm only tiny bit funny. My dad's really funny. He's just one of those really funny people. And he uses it to the glory of God. If you're good at making people laugh, make them laugh. <laughs> Have fun. That's a gift from the Lord. Listen, the Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So all of those good things that are in you, question, did you produce them? If there's something good in you, is it because that you're a good person and someone else is? And of course not. It is a gift from God. It has been sown there by the Creator, the ultimate craftsman. He sowed that in you. If you're artsy, like some people, I remember being a kid in art class, and, and we used to have these drawing projects. And I remember one time I drew something I was so proud. I'm like, I'm a genius, you know? And then, I, and then it was time for show and tell, and I was the worst one in the class. I can't draw to save my life. If God made you artsy, make art for the glory of God. <laughs> and if you, if you can play a guitar, if you can play a trumpet, make noise to the glory of God. And if you have a business mind, that's a gift. You notice some people just are great at making money. Just some people. Like, I sometimes see, like, people go bankrupt three times, and then on their fourth time, they make a multi-million dollar business, and it's just, yeah, you know. And if they lost that one, I have no doubt they do it again. <laughs> some people, are, if God has given you a business mind, then make money to the glory of God. That's a gift. It's a wonderful gift. And this not only works for our character and our interest, but this also works for our skill. This applies to manual labor and contractors. You know, some people can build houses. To me, that's a superpower. I don't know how anyone could do that. How do you know that bean goes there? You know, I have no idea. It's a gift. Or beauticians, or office jobs, or even things like parents and grandparents. What a calling that is. You know, whatever, and whoever, and wherever. You know, maybe you're one of those type A, ultra-organized people. Like, <laughs> great. If the Holy Spirit has come into your life and equipped you to organize things, use it to the glory of God. Because there's people like me who can't organize anything. <laughs> use it. If it's good, God has done it in you. Use it. If he's made you good with a hammer, then bang away to the glory of God. I love what Martin Luther's advice to the cobbler. <clears throat> a cobbler, shoemaker, got saved, and he was so stirred by the Spirit of God, and he, he goes to Martin Luther, and he, you know, he, he's distraught. He says, you know, God, 
God's made me a great cobbler. I have this shop. It makes lots of money. Should I sell it and give it to the poor? Should I become a missionary? Should, 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 what, what should I do, Luther? And Luther's, vice, and Luther's advice was to make a fine shoe and sell it at a fair price. He later comments on this in one of his works and he says, The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoe, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. God is glorified when we do good and honest work. There's that scene. Has anyone ever seen that movie, The Chariots of Fire? Well, in that movie, um, there's a guy and he runs and he runs fast. I can't sympathize with that, but he runs fast. Maybe for a buffet bell, but that's about the only hustle I have. (laughs) Bacon! Uh, He runs fast, but he has a heart for the Lord. And he really wants to become a missionary to China. And he finally gets accepted into the country. He can go to the country and they're ready to take him. And he says, before he goes to China to be a missionary, he wants to compete a few more times. And his friend in the movie, his friend doesn't understand because his desire was to go to China to be a missionary. But now he's postponing it out of the blue all of a sudden. And he says to to his friend, I believe God has made me for a purpose like going to China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Whatever God has put in you, Whatever he has fine-tuned in you to help you excel in whatever your interests are, then use them to make noise, to glorify God with the gifts that he's given you. Use the portions he has. Back to William Wilberforce. He too got radically saved. And he grew up as a wealthy, in a wealthy family. And when he was a young man, as a joke, he ran for British Parliament. He had so much money, his family, and he won. So here he is, a little kid, a young kid, early 20s or something. And he's in the House of British Parliament running the country off of a joke. And he gets radically saved after a few years of this partying and just being crazy. And he gets saved, and he lived in London at the time, and he knew he needed to talk to somebody about this. And so he worked up the courage to go see a famous pastor that was in London in the city at the time. And it said it, he, he walked to his house, and he was so nervous, he circled the block to work up the courage to knock on the door. And when he knocks on the door, the guy opens, and you know who it is? John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And he tells him, he says, look, I met the Lord. I'm in British Parliament. I shouldn't be here. I know this. I did it off of sin. And Newton's advice was, we need more godly men in Parliament. Stay and fight. And it was this man who signed the Abolition Act of 1807, which made it illegal to purchase slaves in all the British Empire. 20 years later, he freed the slaves completely out of England and its colonies. All because Newton said, use what God has given you to his glory. So I don't care if you're a parent, a grandparent, an employer, an employee, you're you're unemployed. We are all in different positions of influence. And no matter where God has you, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then let the world see it. 
And it's not necessarily by putting little crosses on shoes. It's by making a good shoe and selling it as a fi- at a fine price. You're a parent, be a great parent. You're a grandparent, be an awesome grandparent. <laughs> that doesn't mean let them color on the walls because you won't correct them, but and giving them endless cookies and sending them back to the parents. <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding, not really, but kidding. Um, <clears throat> use it to God's glory. Yeah, you want to share your faith. Yeah, l- listen to Christian music. Yes, pray. Yes, uh, give godly counsel, but also do good and honest work. You know, the saying is one in a thousand men read the Bible, but the thousand men read that one man. Be living epistles for all men to read. You know, we, and we live in an age of such depravity, don't we? And we live in an age where there's just not a value on excellence in the workplace. Have you noticed this? I feel like every, almost every other place I go, the cashier or someone's annoyed that I'm asking them something. Like, I'm sorry I'm bothering you at your work, uh, but can you help me find apples, you know? Or what? I ate them all, I'm sorry, I need more. Or, you know, whatever. But if God's people are led by the Spirit and do a good and honest work, And when everyone else is speaking poorly, you speak respectfully and you live with honor. Not only will we be living in a manner that pleases God, but we will be living in a way that fishes for men. Because we're going to be so different if we value godly excellence and ask God to equip us in what we're doing. So I want to close with a story here um, of something that happened to me this week. On Monday, I had my gastro appointment, <clears throat> uh, and after they pulled the license plate out, no, uh, they, I had my gastro appointment this week where my doctor gave me the results of my biopsy, and everything was wonderful, so praise God, I'm very happy about that. I'm back to drinking coffee, heartburn be darned, um, <clears throat> and, and as you can imagine, I was so happy And I decided to go get an early dinner before I had to run my Monday night Bible study. Uh, I just wasn't quite ready for it. I had a crazy week, so I had to like go through my notes and that sort of stuff. So like any uh, good red-blooded American, uh, (laughs) I decided uh, a cow needed to be sacrificed for a victory meal. So I went to Mission Barbecue, and when I walked in there, it was like I could hear the heavenly choir. And I got, they had a half a smoked steak, a half a pound smoked steak on sale. Obviously, I needed that. I needed the jalapeno cheddar sausage because I haven't had anything spicy in two weeks. So that was killer. And then the brisket was there. I'm not going to get the brisket. So I got a So I ended up getting a pound of meat. You know, this was a lot of food. Then it comes with two things of cornbread. And I got the cheesy potatoes because why not? And then I go, and then I, I realized it was 50 some degrees on Monday. Awesome. I'm part Viking, so I want to sit outside. So I sit outside. I'm the only person dumb enough to eat outside, but I don't care. And the guy brings all these sauces out to me like I'm the king of Prussia. It was beautiful. I had tangy, sweet, spicy, smoky, sweet. It was perfect. And I tried all six flavors, believe you me. <clears throat> And the guy was so nice, this little guy. He was probably 120 pounds soaking wet. And he, and he, <laughs> he was the weight of my meal. <clears throat> and then he, he went inside, 
And about a minute later, he, he comes back out with more meat. And I go, he goes, I noticed your brisket was a little fatty. And it was, but I wasn't complaining. And so he brought me more. So now I have even more meat on my table. And I'm thinking, listen, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to eat this, you know, but this is not a human consumption amount of this is too much food. Um, and so I, I go to put in my headphones at work, uh, you know, while, while the, right before the food comes out and because uh, they were playing country music in there. And apparently some guy was on a beach trying to get over with his new girl while he was trying to get over his old girl. But his new girl, he's tired because his new girl's high maintenance. And I'm like, I can't listen to this anymore. <laughs> so I'm trying to put my head and I'm about to put my headphones in. And strongly within my spirit, I heard no. Okay. I've learned don't be dumb enough and force it. So, okay. So I put all my stuff away and I'm just in the moment. And now I have this pile of meat. Oh, it was glorious. I could dream about it. <clears throat> and then I started to eat my meal and about a minute goes by and either someone touched my shoulder or like got right next to my face. I was in the zone eating, so I don't really remember. And this guy starts talking to me. And I look up at him and pretty quickly I realized this is a homeless man. So we start talking and, and I've learned when you're in these situations, don't beat around the bush, just get to the point. So I said, so what's your story? So we start talking. We're having a great old time. I mean, we're laughing. It's like we've been friends forever. And we're talking and all of a sudden it clicks. I know why God gave me so much food now. So we end up having dinner together, me and this man. We share my meal, which worked out because there was so much food there. And the look that he had when he ate that cornbread, it was like he was transformed to a new dimension. He goes, this is the best thing I've ever... He was also a little drunk, but he goes, this is the best thing I've ever had. And it was pretty good, I will confess. And so we start talking about the Lord and God and prayer. And I tell him he needs to get in a rehab. And he goes, oh, I just came from one. And he had the bracelet on. And I go, well, you know, you should go back. And, uh, and he goes, yeah, but my girlfriend's coming to town tomorrow. She's a crackhead, though. And I go, sir, the last thing you need is an alcohol and a crack problem. And he agreed, but we continued to have a great time. He ate most of my sausage. I'm still a little mad about it. But we... we we just were, were laughing and having a masquerade. And then, and then towards the end when the food ran out, fair weather friend, he was like, all right, I'm ready to go. And I told him he needed to pray. And we had this really sweet exchange. And right before he left, he goes, you know, I was walking by you. And I knew I had to talk to you. You had such a sweet spirit. Now, all he could probably see was my back and bones flying, but... <clears throat> <laughs> you know the reason I share that story and I hate sharing stories about myself because the Lord's day should be about the Lord and not my exploits uh, but I wasn't trying to draw anybody but like a city on a hill it cannot be hidden and God draws people to himself this is what he does. If you would submit yourself to the will of God, 
I don't care what you do. I don't care where you are. He will use you. I promise you, he will use you. And there I was at four o'clock on a Monday at Mission Barbecue, conquering a victory meal. And God drew a broken, alcoholic, homeless man with RSV. He was definitely sick. (laughs) And God took the humor that he placed in me and I made him laugh. And the food that he had provided, I shared. And the warm day he had blessed us with, we enjoyed. With the health he had just given me. You know, I was putting the study together and I couldn't help but to see just God's, God's blessings upon his people are innumerable. And anything good we have, anything good we have is not because we deserve it or have earned it. It is because he is good to us. And I don't care how small it is, if you give it to the Lord, he will use it. And so what I want to say is make noise to the glory of God. Use what he has given you and glorify him with it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. God, we pray for this gentleman who's struggling with addiction. God, we pray for all those people that are struggling with addiction right now. Please bring them into the church and let them be loved. God, we pray that you would help all of us, God, with our struggles and, and, and the things that we, we maybe are part of that we should not be part of. God, we ask that you would break old, long-held chains within us. And God, at the same time, you have gifted your spirit to your people. And God, we ask that we would not waste the gifts that you give your church, but that we may use them to glorify you. Whatever that may be, God, use them to glorify you. God, we ask that you speak to us directly this week and point out something in our lives that can be used for your glory. Open up opportunities to be used, God, we pray. And help us to love you enough to obey. God, we pray for anyone here that does not know you, that they may come to a saving faith in you. That they from this moment forth may live a life for your glory. Because God, in your presence is fullness of joy. And outside of your presence is only death. So please God, capture us to yourself. And help joy to become one of the prevailing features of our minds. And we ask all of this in accordance with your word, with accordance with your son. And we praise you, God. We ask that if anyone needs prayer, that they may receive it by our prayer team up here. We ask that if anyone who is weary or broken down, that they may talk to somebody here today. God, may you be pleased in all that you hear and all that you see. And send us out in a fresh and powerful new way. Filled to the brim with your spirit. And in Jesus' name, all who agreed said, amen. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. 
And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. If you can't be here in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon.